we should read our Bibles as men digging for buried treasure. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of peoples according to the number of the sons of God. In those days, and for some time after, giant Nephilites lived on the earth. For whenever the sons of God had intercourse with women, they gave birth to children who became the heroes and famous warriors of ancient times. Take no part in the fruitless deeds of darkness, but yet expose them. Though a thousand fall at your side, though ten thousand are dying around you, these evils will not touch you. Life's a garden, man. You gotta dig it. Hello fellow treasure hunters, welcome to the excavation site. I'm Justin, alongside me we got Ben, Stephen, and Chad. We'll be your guides on this excursion. Hope you brought your shovel and your compass, because we got the map. Let's dig. Well everybody, welcome back. Um, kind of excited. You're not going uh, <laughs> to do his intro? No, I'm not doing his intro. I'm not doing the whatever. <laughs> Justin does. Um, that's that's a whole different ball game. Um, we were having some technical difficulties today, so me and yeah, Ben we're, we're, we're sharing a mic, so <laughs> I don't I don't know what's going on here. All right, well I figure let's get this show on the road. We've had enough uh, technological uh, uh, interferences here because I'm fairly certain that Satan doesn't want everybody to hear this information. So um, I think we should uh, have a word of prayer, and uh, we'll go from there. Dear Lord, thank you for everything you've given us. Just continue to bless us as you have. Please give your hedge of protection around us. Help us understand that we're at war with so many evil powers that are all around us, but you're there to help protect us and, and work us through those things. Please help reach someone tonight that really needs to hear this message, that really could benefit from this information. And in your name we pray, Lord. Amen. So today, we have someone very special with us, Vicki Joy Anderson. She's the author of the book, They Only Come Out at Night, um, which we just got to meet her at um, the Spiritual War Conference that we went to over in Louisville. And it was, it was um, pretty uh, enlightening, to say the least. And, and uh, don't tell anybody else, but you were one of my favorite people. So... Um, <laughs> They're, you know they, they might be listening. They, they might be listening. That's, that's okay. But I just, I really liked it because you tackled a subject that so many people have such a hard time even admitting that they've, that they've experienced um, being part of. Uh, it's, it's, it's almost a, ta well, it is. It's a taboo subject to so many people that I think maybe giving a better understanding and, and, and shedding some light on this and, and how this is you know, this isn't, you know, someone's not crazy. Someone's not delusional. Someone doesn't have a, a disease. It's, this is, there's something else going on. So um, really, I'd like you just to jump in and start talking about what is sleep paralysis. Sure, absolutely. First of all, thanks guys so much for having me on. I've been looking forward to this one and this will probably be a great chat here. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, so the book is They Only Come Out at Night, Exposing the Dark Weapon of Sleep Paralysis. And I don't know, guys, this is melodramatic, but I think this was the book I was born to write. Like, seriously, I uh, wanted to be a writer since I was 10 years old, went, went the college route, got the degree in writing, and just figured I'd follow in my mom's footsteps and write beautiful Christian women's devotionals and encouraging <laughs> little pieces. And 
which is funny because if you look at my whole entire upbringing and, and the stuff I went through, I mean, I kind of had a rough life. I had a great home life, but uh, from day one, um, you know, complicated birth, birth defect in the hospital for the first month, surgeries from 10 days old till I was about 15 or 16, in and out of the hospital all the time, bullied at school, teased, made fun of. So just a lot of kind of that sort of trauma in my life. And so that, of course, shapes a personality. And so I kind of, by the time I got into high school, was kind of a pretty anti-social, mistrusting of people, kind of always giving people a rough time. And every, everything in my life was kind of dark. I was a follower of Jesus. Like I, I was a genuine believer. I was living a righteous life. I wasn't some partier. I wasn't doing the drug party, sleeping around thing at all. I genuinely love the Lord, but the, this sleep paralysis experience coupled with all of the surgeries and the bullying really darkened my soul. And the things that I found attractive were things that were very ugly. So I was into like all the horror movies and the, not just like the little pop hairband girly metal but like i'm talking like the the death metal kind mm -hmm. of stuff and the poetry that i wrote and the kind of stuff i wrote was dark and reading hp lovecraft and and just very it darkened my soul and so what what i started to realize as i got older and spent years undoing all of that and bringing the light back into my soul and really asking the Lord to help create within me appetites and a delight for things that were beautiful, uh, which, which took a while as I began to uproot these things one by one. Uh, I realized that the sleep paralysis really played into that transformational attempt on behalf of the enemy to turn me into a dark creature. And I, I recognized that there was a kind of cliche tug of war going on where the father had me securely in his grip and the enemy had me by another arm. And it was this constant yanking to try to get me over that line and into the dark side. And I think if I hadn't been raised in a Christian home and if I hadn't really had the Holy Spirit with me from day one, constantly guiding me and speaking to me and convicting me. I, I probably would have fallen dark, d deep into to the dark things and not even the new age. I think I probably would have been into some really dark black magic-y kind of things. I mean, that was really where the enemy was trying to pull me. So this isn't just simply a matter of, there are a lot of Christians that suffer from this and they're even in a more lonely, isolated place than the other people because you go to church or you go to your Christian friends, you really run the risk in this area of being misunderstood. You really run the risk into being accused of what did you do to open these doors? Uh, what are you entertaining? Um, are you really even a believer? Uh, there, there's all sorts of shame involved. And, and so I think a lot of Christians are isolated in this. So here I am having this unique perspective as a believer who struggled with this for over 40 years, where I know that not only are there thousands of believers out there silently suffering from this, but I also know that there's more to this than just bad dreams or being tormented. But this is 
a very intense struggle on behalf of the enemy to pull these people into darkness. It is a transformational process. And you'll find that most people who have these experiences over the course of their life, one of two things will happen. It will lead them deep into the arms of Jesus and they will become profoundly spiritual warfare kind of aware believers. Or people will begin dabbling in astral projection and in new age and in sigil magic and in black magic and white magic and ghost hunting and paranormal activity and they will go all the way there's no there, there's no one who has had this experience over the course of their life i'm not talking about someone who had it one time when they were a teenager or one time when they were jet lagged i mean the people who've been sort of marked from birth and harassed for decades over this it is a spiritually trans forming process and you will either be transformed into the image of Christ through this or you will be transformed into the image of the beast there's no middle ground on this this is a tug of war for this person's soul let's back up just a little bit and when you're talking about I want to say two things first because I think it's you know God puts you where you need to be when you need to be there, you know, he opens up and and I think Tom Dunn was the one that really said that he goes, he didn't, he didn't really want to be in deliverance ministry, but he said that that's where God put him. So he does it. I mean, that's, and I thought that was really profound thing to say, but in your case, we were at that conference and we sat down when we had the luncheon and I sat down at the table with, uh, David Hevner and, um, and uh, Paxton and uh, my gosh, did I, those guys were great, but <laughs> we sat down and the, the lady sitting next to me, she's like, she's like, Oh, I'm just so excited to see what's next. And I said, wow, we're, we're excited for Vicki joy. That's going to be a really good one. And, and she says, she says, Oh, what, you know, what did she write a book or, you know, what's the, and I said, well, it's, it's about sleep paralysis and her jaw just about dropped. And she said, she didn't even know. And she goes, I've been suffering with that for years and I've never been comfortable to tell anybody. And that was just sitting at that table before your presentation. She just ended up being where she needed to be at that time. Oh, wow. So I thought that was. I I hope I talked to her. I hope she came to my table or something. I hope she did too. Um, But I think no matter what, she definitely got something out of your presentation because it was pretty, I mean, it's pretty profound because like I said, there's, I I mean, I'm a little forward here, but you're kind of the, the, the uh, top of your field in this. I mean, really, because. You know, there's a lot of people, like I said, either it's taboo or they kind of, you know, push it uh, under the table, under the rug, because they we don't talk about uncomfortable supernatural things. Hmm. The other thing I think that's important to talk about is you're talking about even though you're in a Christian home and I was raised the same way. And Ben, I know you were raised the same way. Liz, you were raised the same way. We are all blessed to have that. But we still have our struggles. You know, no one just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you don't struggle, doesn't mean that you don't suffer. And we all go through our different trials and tribulations. Some of them are things we can't control. And other ones are ones I we wish we could go back and change. Yeah. But I think it's really important to look at the fact that that Sorry. <laughs> I think it's really important to look back at that. And and anybody out there listening who who feels that because. There's days that I still feel that oppression that I went through because of that. I don't know. That's, there are days that oppression is just hitting me so hard 
and um, it, it's 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 so you know it, it goes back to that and I have a hard I know I know that God and Jesus have let those let those things go because I've I've, I've truly repented things of that nature but you know you still it, it's harder for us to forgive ourselves or to let things go or or you know maybe hurtful things people say or you know the way that we feel attacked at times but I think this is such an important message to tell people is that it's okay that we suffer. It's okay that we go through these things because in the end, you know, we're going to heaven. But there is a lot of battles along the way. Absolutely. And that's one of the things I try to hit home at the end of the book. You know, I I do think if you're a Christian and you're going through this and it's happening a lot, yes, absolutely the first place to look is in the mirror. We do have to come to grips with is there something I'm doing to open these doors? Is there sin in my life? Is there unconfessed sin in my life? Is there a secret sin in my life? Or um, sometimes it might require some prayer. Like there might be a charged object in your house. It might be something ancestral. But I, with all that aside, you know, I spend five chapters talking about all that stuff. And in the sixth chapter, I say, okay, Christians, if you're a believer, you genuinely love the Lord Jesus Christ. You've committed your life to him. You're, you're, you are as best as you can pursuing holiness despite your fallen nature and you are being hounded by this there is another thing to consider and we have to be careful with this one this is not the first go-to uh but when you think about okay this has been hounding me for over 40 years and uh i can't shake it and i'm doing all the formulaic things and i'm praying all the prayers and i've repented of everything what's going on there is an aspect as well that we have to understand that the enemy can be targeting those that are a threat to him. And I'm not one of these people. I'm really cautious with this kind of thing. I'm not one of these people that wants to wear a t-shirt saying that Satan says, "Uh Oh, when she gets up in the morning, you know, like Satan's not afraid of me. He could pick me off in two seconds. You know, I'm, I'm a fearless warrior. Who's going to stand my ground and be victorious because I have the name of Jesus. I got Jesus standing in front of me, Mm -hmm. you know, but he could pick me off, you know, any day of the week. And so I, I really don't think a cocky approach to that, you know, running around telling everybody I'm a warrior. Like I, I'm not real into that, but I will tell you that it, we have biblical examples where the enemy seemed to have some Intel before guys were even out of the womb that this guy was going to be a thorn in his side he 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 knew that jesus was going to be a problem he knew moses was going to be a problem and not a lot of people know this because it's in the book of jasher not in the bible but uh he tried to pick abraham off as an infant as well and that's a really uh cool story about nimrod demanding that abraham's father hand over your son Um, i'm gonna kill him and um, so I do think that this um, this notion, I'm trying to just encourage Christians who feel tormented by this, because I get letters on the daily from Christians who are like, I cannot fight this anymore. I'm exhausted. I'm spiritually drained. This is affecting every aspect of my life. This is torment. And sometimes in the rare cases, I do think that the Lord allows it to continue because it is a boot camp scenario. I don't know how close we are to the end, but I do know that at some point 
God is going to gather an end times army. And they're going to have to, like David, you're going to have to have a lion and a bear before that giant shows up, right? Mm -hmm. You're going to have to face the fear of those, those dripping jowls, you know, running towards you and your sheep. You're going to have to learn the skill of, of maneuvering that slingshot. And so I do think that part of the agenda here, part of one of these, what, what you meant for evil, God intended for good. One of these kind of like Joseph moments is that there is a group of people that are called to endure this particular type of warfare so that their slingshot capabilities are up to where they need to be when the real war starts. Uh, it, if, 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 if it all hit the fan right now and the army was the basic pew-warming evangelical church, <laughs> it would be a slaughter mm -hmm. because people aren't aware of this. We don't talk about this much in church and we've stripped the supernatural out, out of our theology and the church is in general pretty unprepared to fight a battle of the magnitude that Revelation prophesies is coming. And so I think for some of this, um, for some of us, this is a training ground. I agree 100%. I think that that's something that, um, and I told these guys the same thing, and, and it's happened, and I can already see it happening, is that the more we do something even like this, and I like we are so low-key compared to the majority of people in this space, but as soon as we start doing something that is... Um, you know, in a positive light in God's name, you're automatically under more attack. Mm -hmm. So you have to know it's coming. You have to be ready. You have to put on the armor of God, yeah. right? Um, I think kind of steering back, steering back, I'm sorry, I backed this up and uh, got us That's off okay. track there. If, if you ain't ain't noticed, back it up is his, uh, it's his catchphrase. <laughs> back it up. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. That's apparently that's apparently uh, okay <laughs> anyway um i'd say uh i think actually you had a couple of verses that you pointed out especially like uh in job four which i think shows um and, and then was it a, a is it ephesians 6 right that you taught we taught it talks about we do not um battle mm -hmm. with you, I'll let you go ahead. I'll let sure. you. Oh, here's I got it. I got them written right here. But I will right. let you go ahead. I think that when you read Job, uh, that Job four passage when we were at the conference, I got chills a little bit. Um, mm. It's it's pretty intense and it'll it'll hit you. But um, yeah. if you want to go ahead, feel free. I know I'm putting you on the spot. Yeah, absolutely. I I'm pretty sure that that Job passage is the very intro to chapter one here and mm -hmm. my studio here is kind of dark so and my eyes aren't good but um not sure i'm going to be able to see this do you want here i'll go ahead i'll read it for you then how about you interpret perfect perfect that's uh, even better so job 4 13 through 16 it came to me in a disturbing vision at night when people are in a deep sleep fear gripped me and my bones trembled a spirit swept past my face and my hair stood on end the spirit stopped, and I couldn't see its shape, but there was a form before my eyes. 
And man, whew, that gives me the chills just talking about it. And right. um, I, I mean, that, that kind of sums up the, the core. I know there's many different variations of, of sleep paralysis, but that kind of sums up the core. Um, it has a lot of the factors, I guess, that kind of go involved in that. So I, I'll let you take it from there. Absolutely. I love this passage, not only because it, it's a pretty out there, like blunt description of sleep paralysis, but um, I like to use this verse to caution people who are delving into the paranormal and the new age and astral projection and wanting, craving as they did in the days of Enoch for this, uh, the mysteries of heaven. They wanted this knowledge and men craved it. And so they, they still crave it today. Mm -hmm. And so what I like to tell people, and I use this, this Job passage as the proof text, and that is a lot of people out of context believe that that verse, those verses that you just read is yet another aspect of torment that this poor guy named Job was going through. He lost his family. He was sick. He was scratching his you know sores with pot shards. And on top of that, he can't even get a good night's sleep. He's got all this sleep paralysis bugging him. But if you read it in context, it's not Job who had this experience. It's Eliphaz, mm -hmm. one of his friends. And so now it takes on a whole new meaning for people dabbling with this stuff and also for people who are, ex who are experiencing spiritual warfare like we've just been talking about. If you're a Christian and you're putting yourself out there and you're exposing the deeds of the devil you will undergo many, many levels of warfare. And this was yet another attack on Job. His friend was in essence saying, after he describes the, the spirit that he sees in his room, he says that this spirit spoke to him and he's now taking that message from heaven to, to, to basically tell Job, you're a sinner and you've brought this upon yourself and this wouldn't be happening to you if you were a righteous man, which is exactly, it's the same gaslighting line that sleep paralysis believers get today. They go to tell their pastor and it's not like, hey, let's work this out. Let's pray about this. Let's see if, you know, we, the Holy Spirit reveals to us something about this. No, it's tell me about your secret porn addiction. What'd you do to open up this door? You know, it's the same gaslighting. So Eliphaz comes to Job and says, you can't argue with what I'm about to say because an angel from heaven came down in my room. I had a spiritual paranormal experience where a wise sage or a spirit guide told me this. So certainly you're not going to argue with, with, with a spiritual messenger. Like this is coming from God. And we get that in our day and age too. You know, God wants me to tell you, or I have a message for you from God. Like we get all the same sort of stuff in, in the church today too. So what's happening here is this guy is putting confidence in his perceived wisdom because he believes it was it came from beyond the veil. It came from the spirit realm. And obviously the spirit realm, they're wiser than us. And it's light and love and wisdom and knowledge. And so any message that we get from beyond the veil is something spiritual and trustworthy. And so I like to point out to the New Agers that at the end of that book, Eliphaz, along with his two cohorts there, were actually, from the mouth of God himself, proven to be wrong in their counsel. Their counsel was proven to be false. And in fact, Job had to offer sacrifices 
on their behalf to forgive them because they stepped so far out of line by giving bad counsel. And so when, when I hear people talk about how grandma comes to the end of the bed and, you know, even though grandma lived a completely unrighteous life and, and had no regard for the love of, or for the law of God and had no love for him and never cared about any of that stuff. She's got this message of how wonderful the afterlife is and heaven and all this. And so anytime someone sees grandma or they see a being filled with light or they get some sort of pleasurable feeling where they're overwhelmed with a peace or a love that they can't describe and they automatically then without testing the spirits assume because this makes me feel good it must be good and true and pure and right and lovely and excellent and trustworthy and we have got to come up with a more sophisticated way of testing the spirits than whether or not you were scared or happy after you encountered one of these things because on the flip side we have many examples in scripture of people who encountered the good angels. They came from heaven with glad tidings and good messages and prophetic words. And the most common phrase coming out of these angels' mouths is fear not, do not be afraid. These people were trembling, their knees were knocking, they were fainting, they were having to be revived, they were terrified. And so here we have an example of we encounter angels from heaven and it evokes terror but then we have examples where people are meeting these astral enemies and this will come into play with the next verse we're going to talk about in ephesians and they're filled with light and love so that must be one of the good guys and i'm just saying this unsophisticated method of testing the spirits based upon nothing but the litmus of our own emotions the hardest deceitfully wicked above all things who can trace it out. We need more sophisticated ways of testing spirits than our own emotional reaction to them. Oh, agree with that 110%. I think you just, I think you just blew Ben's mind. <laughs> well, I was just going to say, uh, I'm pretty sure almost all of America goes by their feelings. Ooh. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And and look yeah. and look how good we're doing. Yeah. Oh boy! It just it just keeps getting better and better. I know we're evolving. We came a long way, baby. Oh jeez! All right, oh. I, I, maybe on a maybe on a. I think we're at the end of Rome. That's that's about where we're at. I think we're on our way as a country. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we're not far I away. I always tell people. I always tell people. I hate to burst your bubble, but. Um, it could be the end of the world, like Jesus might be coming back, and I hope he is. That'd be awesome. But here's another scenario. He might not be coming back for another 100 years, and America's just going down the tubes, you know? Don't don't bust my bubble. Don't, I'm sorry, Don't, don't bust my I'm bubble. Sorry. I'm sorry. I'm ready. I'm ready for him. <laughs> I am, too. I am, too. But it's this ethnocentric idea that surely— the world cannot go on another day if America fell. <laughs> oh, I know. And that's the hard part is, you know, how many times throughout history have people thought that, that, you know, we're at the end times. You look at World War One or World War Two. you know, you look at the Holocaust. I mean, these people are like, it cannot get any worse than this. Yeah. You know, and you can go back throughout history. You know, it, they thought the apostles thought, you know, when he said he was coming back soon, it was going to be in their lifetime. They yeah. thought it was going to be right then because, you know, things were already – but it kind of makes you wonder how bad were things in the days of Noah? Like how bad was it that everybody had to be killed? I mean, that's I just. I it, it does seem like, okay, 
maybe we need to be apologizing to Sodom and Gomorrah at some point because <laughs> I can't imagine it was worse. <laughs> oh, I, I don't know. I think sometimes we're there, but, um, yeah. but all right, moving on. I'm sorry. I, I keep, uh, we, we I I sidetrack I side, I side us, but, uh, <laughs> let's jump over to Ephesians six twelve because I think this is kind of, this is kind of foundational for, um, you know, that Deuteronomy 32 worldview, this is foundational for, uh, you know, a lot of Michael Heiser's work and, and a lot of stuff that um, you guys focused on in the conference, too, because everything is about the the spiritual side of things. This is we've you know, we've taken that we've taken that out of the Bible. And, and you know, if we look back, there was people like Martin Luther who really tried to to take that supernatural out but he had good intent but it was it didn't you know he tried to he, he didn't want anybody to put any other deity you know when we say deity the lowercase g gods he didn't want to put anybody on the same level as jesus he didn't want to make it look like there was someone that was even remotely close to that mm. so it, it was in you know in his own mind you know for the right reasons but as soon as we take that out of the bible then we're, we're disarming ourselves and Absolutely. I think that this Ephesians 6, uh, 12, for we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rule, rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in heavenly places. Mm. And I think that sums, that sums up. <laughs> <laughs> there is so much to unpack in, in this, so I got to reel it in. But um this is where I get into a lose-lose situation, guys, because um, there's usually a split audience between the people that are intrigued with the topic of sleep paralysis. We've got Christians, and then we've got people who have suffered from sleep paralysis that can either be a Christian or they can be you know, interested in or delving into or sympathetic towards new age or astral projection or occult or, or things like that. So there's no way to say something that's gonna appease both sides. And so if I say astral realm or astral plane, the Christians get very triggered because the word astral there is associated with new age. And, and um, I, I'm an English major. Astral just means of or pertaining to the stars. God created the stars. We know from Genesis 1 that part of the purpose of the stars is for signs and Moedim. And so we know that the stars do have some sort of purpose. And, you know, you can read about the Maseroth, which is an a awesome study ew uh, e. bollinger writes about it and banks i always get his first name wrong i always want to say david banks but i think it's william i think it's william banks they write about the maseroth and so anyway all that to say um you say astral and then christians are like oh i did you hear that she's a heretic and then so then if you say second heaven people are like oh did you hear her say that that and they ascribe this whole entire theological doctrine to that and we want chapter and verse. Where's second heaven ever? Oh, I want a chapter and verse. But then if you don't say astral plane, then the people that you really want to reach, the people that aren't biblically you know, trained, then they have no idea. They don't connect the dots that the heavenly places you're talking about is where they're exploring. And like they don't. Under so I would rather communicate in a way where the lost understand what I'm saying. Um, but here's, here's what I say for, to, for the people that need the chapter or the verse, the heavenly places in Ephesians six twelve. I think it says high places in the King James version, uh, depending on your translation, that the heavenly places, the high places, if you go to the Greek, it's Epiranios. And if you really study into 
the lexicon of Epiranios and the way it's conjuncted in that sentence and the way it's to be interpreted. And if you go to the Thayers and you, you study that word out in the context in which it's used, it, it specifies the lower heavens. And what, it, what it's trying to do there is avoid any confusion that all of our enemies that we're at war at, these rulers, these archons, these, these powers and evil forces of darkness who hate us, they don't live in capital H heaven. They're not in the throne room of God, like riffraff all over the throne room. And so it's, it's simply trying to differentiate the fact that there is a space, a plane, a realm, a dimension, a heaven, Pick whatever synonym doesn't trigger you, because I'm not trying to make any sort of there's, theological there's distinction. There's the emotions here. again. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not a heretic, and I'm not a— Stop hurting know, people's feelings. I'm not a new, a new age chill here. I'm just trying to get everyone to understand that there is a heaven that is not the throne room of God you know, where he is sitting at the right hand of God, ruling and reigning with the scepter and all things are under his feet and he's in control. Um, this second heaven, this astral plane, this these high places that you're going to, these beings that you're interacting with are created by God, but they are not in his service. They, they, they are the continuation of the failed attempt at Hermon, they came down and they taught the worthless secrets of heaven and they were judged for it and they were wiped off the planet. So all of the guys that didn't come down Hermon are up in their like home saying, well, how do we continue our agenda? How do we continue to re-educate mankind in our religion? And in our belief system, how do we continue teaching these worthless mysteries of heaven without getting creamed or thrown into the abyss? Like, how do we do that? Well, instead of going down to earth, now they want us to come up to their territory. You come up here, you come up to the astral or you come up to the whatever you want to call it. And we are, not, this is our loophole. God can't punish us for leaving our first estate and teaching man secrets of heaven. These people want these secrets and they're coming to us. So you have to punish them. They're initiating it. See how they put the onus on us now? Mm -hmm. So people are going up there. And because these, these evil entities parade around as angels of light and they can look beautiful and bright if they want to, they can be wolves in sheep's clothing. They can, you know, put on Hirachi sandals and a blue sash and a man bun and say, my name is Jesus. And people think it's Jesus because he's such a nice guy and helped them with, you know, their dating problems and the things that they went up there to ask their spirit guide about. But the fact of the matter is these, and, and this is what I try to tell new age people. I, I like, it's not a matter of exploring the astral realm and getting out of the lower levels of it into the higher levels to, to, to evolve to escalate out of the lower realms where the low vibrational beings are and then once you ascend past that into higher levels you meet the the ascended masters and the spirit guides and the gurus and the good guys there are no good guys up there you know and 
I know there's an aspect, there's always one person and I'm not, I'm not being disrespectful or facetious. You have to just take my word for it. I greatly respect Christians who are good Bereans because there's not many of them left. And, and if there's good Bereans out there listening to this now who are splitting hairs and weighing every single word I'm saying, I will not fault you for that because we are called to do that. But I don't want you to hear me saying that Jesus isn't everywhere or he's not omnipresent. I understand that the presence of God, I understand that he's omnipresent. And in that sense, he's everywhere. You can't go anywhere and depart from his presence. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is if you're looking for wisdom and knowledge and sanctification and holiness, and you're looking for intimacy and fellowship and wisdom and guidance and counsel from almighty God, you do not have to go to the astral realm to try to dig through hundreds of thousands of evil, low vibrational beings who are there to trick you and deceive you and bring you into bondage and, and covenants to find someone who said you can find them in your own living room if you just close your eyes and say, Jesus, help me, or Jesus. We don't need to go anywhere to, to tune into the Holy Spirit or to communicate with the Lord. We don't have to, our, our souls don't have to leave our bodies to do this. We don't have to be in a trance state. We don't have to be meditating. We don't have to be in an altered state of consciousness. We don't need some sort of uh, psychedelic to help us get there. If we call on the name of the Lord, he's there. He hears us. And so that's what I'm trying to say. I'm not saying that God isn't omnipresent and that his presence doesn't somehow fill the earth to the capacity that he's overwhelming the astral realm as well. But what I'm saying is we don't go there to talk to our God because we don't need to. That That's 100% on point. I We have to know that that the whole point, the whole point of Jesus dying and, and then, and then you go through and, and Pentecost, right. Is so that the Holy spirit can live inside us. No longer do we have to count on the priests or no longer do we have to count on, on, um, you know, them going and, and talking to him in the Holy of Holies, you know, that it, when the, when the curtain was torn, when the curtain was torn, we all of a sudden we're, we're no longer separated from, from God. So yeah. that, that right there is a, yeah, that's, I mean, that, I mean, it's huge when you really think about the ramifications of that. Absolutely. You know, the occult and new age, they, they're willing now, not so much in the past, but they're willing now to let Jesus into their pantheon, but it's always Jesus plus something else. So it's, um, you, you know, like Jesus can heal, but now all of a sudden, you know, in new age healing, okay, if you want to pray to Jesus or have worship music playing while you do your yoga or whatever, that's fine. Do whatever you want. But it's still this idea that in addition to Jesus, you need something else to connect with this higher power. Um, you know, like Jesus would, could lay his hand on someone and heal them. And so then people say, well, that's the same thing as Reiki. Well, no, it's not. Because in Reiki, you have to memorize a, a dozen or more extremely complex sigils or symbols and their meaning and you throw these symbols while while you're doing reiki jesus didn't need a bunch of symbols to heal people and so anytime you've got a healing process or some sort of process to connect spiritually where you need a bunch of classes or trainings or certifications or you have to spend money for it 
or you need to memorize a bunch of symbols or you need some sort of wand or a crystal or a, you know, fill in the blank, you know, all these trinkets. Uh, we can connect directly to the Father. He's at our beck and call. And we don't need all these accoutrements in order to access his power. Yeah, I, yeah, that's, I mean, it's, it's such a gift, you know, and on top of that, we have the word, right? We have the Bible, we have the scripture. So yeah. he, he talks to us and, and he's, 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 it's a gift given to us that we have that ability to connect to him in that way. Um, I guess, I, I mean, I, I like this. I, lo I loved so far where this has been because we're hitting areas that, Whenever I've listened to you and things, things that we're taking it somewhat a little bit outside of the normal things that you talk about, which I really like, because I think you have so much to talk about. And you have so much information um, and you're such a spiritual person. And I appreciate that. Uh, but I, I do want to get into when we're talking about um, the the hearth and we talk about the, uh, the the salt and the bread covenants and things of that nature. I really want you to dive into the, the covenant thing, especially because I don't think people totally understand um, as a whole how that how you make these packs, how you make these covenants and how, you know, and we've talked about that. And, and, and the stuff that we heard a lot from you guys in the conference was really eye opening because it talked about things like the. Um, uh, the generational curses and, 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 you know, and things that follow you along those ways, things you didn't even know that you're part of, but you're still part of it because of the blood, because of the bloodline. So there's a lot that's, that's involved a lot that's on the plate there. Um, and as you like to say, there's a lot to dissect there. There's, <laughs> there's a lot to take from that. So, um, I kind of, like I said, I'll let you jump back into that, but those are the threshold idea and, and, you know, how it's, how it's evolved throughout mm -hmm. history, I think is such an important picture to paint for everybody. And then the covenant thing, and I'm telling you, you cannot leave out the last supper. Okay. Okay. All right? You can't leave it out or I'm calling you back tomorrow. We're doing a disorder right. again. <laughs> all right. All if, right. If everything will work. <laughs> yeah. Right. Okay. I'm going to lay a, a tiny little bit of groundwork here. Uh, here in the year 2022, we have this concept that we've sort of evolved, we've become, you know, civilized, and we're more educated and intelligent than anyone's ever been. And look at our technology and the things of the past. We we need and want to disconnect with that stuff because it's it's ignorant and it's ancient. And oh, look at the Bible; it was written by a bunch of guys who, you know, didn't even know cosmology. And like we we so we tend to want to disconnect with the past because we feel that we have evolved way beyond them. In technology and intelligence and in figuring things out. However, the world that we live in, it's a continuum. You can't just break an era out here and have it make sense in a vacuum. Our culture, our language, our history, our traditions, our worldviews, our religions, every single one of it. If you if it was like a ball of yarn and you were going to unwind your culture or your language or your religion to the to the to the end of that ball of yarn every single thing that ball of yarn would end on day 1 <laughs> in the beginning because everything is a continuum and so this idea that just because something was true 
or in place a thousand years ago that we can just divorce ourselves from it and it's not going to have an impact on us. That is why the demon world has so much power over us because they bank on our ignorance of the legalities that we need to know to avoid getting ourselves in hot water. And so uh, there's even a really interesting word to go back to Ephesians 6.12. It talks about the forces of darkness. And that word darkness in Greek is skatas, S-K-O-T-A-S. And again, if you study that word in the context of how it sits in Ephesians 6.12 and what, what various facets of deeper meaning that word takes on in that context, we get a very fascinating piece of information. Yes, darkness on the surface means evil. It means bad stuff. It means sin. It means the consequences of sin, all that. But in the context of Ephesians 6.12, darkness implies human ignorance of divine things and ignorance of their place in the world. So these evil forces of darkness, these dark powers, one of the things that they're doing, and one of the reasons why we're so reeled in by new age and false religions and false messiahs is we have a sense because we've evolved that we now finally as Christians understand what all the laws and the prophets and the, and the scriptures really meant. But it is really our ignorance of the foundations. And it, if we read the Bible vo divorced from the history, the language, the culture, the geography, the context of it, we are going to have an ignorance of divine things. And so uh, they're banking on that ignorance. So what they do, and we're getting around now to answering your question about the thresholds, <laughs> is there are things that legally are still in place that have fallen so far out of our knowledge and understanding. But because they still stand in the heavenlies, we're accountable for these things. And a lot of people then start saying, well, that's not fair because we have a free will and you can't, it's no fair. You can't trick us. But if you go all the way back to the very, very first human failure in the Garden of Eden, it was done through trickery. And God didn't say, hey, you're not playing fair because you got tricked. I'm going to hit this big, you know, cosmic reset button and it's not going to count. Adam and Eve were still held accountable for that, even though they were tricked. And so to say that that was uh, part of the game back then and it's not now just doesn't make sense. And so when it says in scripture, yesterday, today, and forever, Jesus is the same, or I, the Lord God, I, I am the Lord God, I do not change. There are rules and boundaries and laws and legalities set in place from the foundation of the world that we have forgotten about. The spirit realm, our enemy, the cosmic forces, all of those, you know, riffraff up in the, in the high places, they remember it all. So the, the good news and the bad news is they're extremely legalistic and it's good news and bad news. It's good news because if you figure out their game, you can easily shut them down because they're so legalistic. They have to abide by, you know, what, what you're doing. But the bad news is if we don't know what we're doing. 
uh, if we don't know the rules and they trick us into something because they're so legalistic, they can get away with this stuff until by the power of the Holy Spirit, we figure out where we went wrong. And I have a prayer mapping exercise at the end of my book where I, I'm showing people, this is how you pray to get to the source of what opened these doors. And it's not always what you think it is. So anyway, what's going on here is in about the early to mid 1800s, the practice of threshold covenants fell out of practice. They were, they were practiced all over the world up until the 1800s. I mean, that's pretty, that's not that far away in, in history. These threshold covenants, they were, they were done all over the world and we see a hint of it in Passover. This Passover wasn't a one and done like, oh, hey, you know, um, slaughter an animal and put the blood on the door. You know, that, that was something that had already been done all over the world for hundreds of years. And it was practiced after that as well. And it, these threshold covenants, um, way in antiquity, they actually were pretty grisly. The, the blood that was used to paint the door uh, were sometimes human. It was, it was blood sacrifice. Uh, and again, as we move into more and more civilized eras, the things that were in the time of Noah, very grisly and bloody and grotesque, metaphors uh, would start to stand in for them. So then all the, then instead of a human or a child, we're going to, we're going to slaughter a lamb instead. And, and we even see it up to now, we still practice threshold covenants to this day, but because we have an ignorance of divine things, we don't even know where they came from. When you're doing a business deal and you shake on it, that is left over from threshold covenants where they would the two men making the covenant would dip their hands in the blood and they would take their hands then and they would press their hands on the lintels of the door and they would leave a blood-soaked handprint on the lintel as, as physical evidence that they had just covenanted with one another. And so this handshake is a way of kind of removing the blood from the blood covenant, but it, it's, this, it's this old leftover of the threshold covenant where there was handprints involved. And busting a wine bottle to christen a ship it's a blood covenant the wine is standing in for the blood but it used to be that whenever they would build a building um or they they would christen something it was an actual blood sacrifice that they would offer to appease the gods to bless that land bless that home bless that building bless that ship and so it, it's still in our culture today we see it with carrying the bride over over the threshold that goes down to very real beliefs in antiquity that when a woman entered into a new home and she crossed the threshold of her husband's home, any of the demons that lived in that home could attach to her. And it was this way of tricking the entities where if I carry my bride over the, the threshold so her feet aren't stepping over the threshold, she'll be protected from the evil entities in this home because I protected her from her feet hitting the floor. There's all sorts of things that are left over in our, in our culture. But in antiquity, if you entered into a threshold covenant, you were basically telling the person who was entering your home, you are now like a bloodborne son or daughter in my home. And the same benefits that I would give to my own bloodborne children are now available to you. I will protect you as long as you are in my home. I will protect you with my own life. I'll feed you. you. You'll be in fellowship. So the interesting thing about these threshold covenants is 
if you take this into Aleister Crowley's law of reversal, we know that the occult is basically just take every single thing in scripture and flip it on its head. Just do the opposite of it. Do it blasphemously. Do it backwards. Do it upside down. You know, that sort of thing. We've got the, the you know, the, it's, it's the law of reversal. So anyway, anytime you see something demonic or occult-like, one of the questions you should ask isn't simply what what is this and why is this happening to me and how do I make it stop? You also have to ask if if the enemy is a thief and a liar, what actually is happening here? What part of scripture is being blasphemed right now? What is the perfect picture that is being flipped on its head right now? So here's where it gets really interesting. And uh, chapter four of my book, uh, Threshold Covenants and Astral Vampires, uh, is really the, the crux of 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 my research and, and it's you said this. it you said it really weighed on you when you were writing it too i yes i had physical issues writing this book like exhaustion i would get up to write and i'd be so tired i would like well i'm just going to take a little nap and i'm not a nap person typically and i would lay down and i would wake up at like seven o'clock at night like i would be in this deep and and then after i finally got the chapter written about a year later, I and I'd forgotten all about that. When I got to chapter four to edit it, the same thing happened. And then when when I got the book to LA, LA Marzuli published the book. When I sent the finished draft to LA, he would check in after chapter one, love it, this is great. Chapter two, great. Chapter three, great. Chapter four, he's like, oh, he's like, I couldn't even get through that chapter I, I i had to just keep coming back to it it, it's, it was just like oh so anyway in this chapter i talk about these threshold covenants and what's interesting to me is that many times not all the time but many times when people talk about a sleep paralysis experience they will say that they see a shadow man or some sort of entity or a shadow or a dark spot or they'll feel this presence in the room and a lot of times it starts at the door. It hovers by the bedroom door. And this is something I noticed when I was really young. And I just thought it was something that they were doing to kind of prolong the terror. It, it kind of creates suspense. Like if you were a filmmaker and you were doing a horror movie, you know, it, it's that you see this thing slowly making its way towards you and it, it builds the fear, which they love. They feed on that. So I just kind of thought it was just a, it's just something that they do to like create more of that you know, terrifying you know, anticipation by the time they reach the bed. But what I realized in writing this book is that there's a very specific reason why they are starting out many times at the door. And it's because they have to get an invitation. These, these entities cannot barge into your room uninvited. They have to be invited. This is where the whole vampire lore comes in. Vampire lore has become extremely fictionalized. Hollywood has turned it into something glamorous, something erotic, something, uh, you know, almost more at this point. Um, it's just glamorized more than it is, you know, terrifying. And especially in the last decade with the fiction that's come out. But the, the code of ethics, the vampire code of ethics is that a vampire cannot harass you until you invite it over the threshold of your house. 
And once you invite it over the threshold, you are in essence in covenant with them. And you'll see a almost inseparable connection in Semitic traditions and in the scriptures and in threshold covenants. There is an inseparable connection between a threshold covenant and betrothal covenants in the Semitic world. And so in, in, in the vampire lore, it's the vampire can't come into your house un, until you've invited it. And once you've invited it in, it will cross the threshold. In, in betrothal language, what happens is in, in Jewish weddings, and they still practice this to this day, I believe, there's more than one ceremony. But upon the second ceremony where the wedding is going to, the marriage is going to be consummated, the, the bride goes into the tent and the husband is not invited in. He cannot come in to the tent of consummation until she gives him permission and says, you are invited to come in. I am ready now. He enters into the tent and he goes further back and there's a second door. There's a second threshold. There's an inner threshold. This goes to the Tamian chamber. The Tamian chamber is the exact place of this tent during the betrothal where the wedding is consummated. The marriage is physically consummated. So he has to get through the front door and the bedroom door, right? He's got to be invited through the front door. And what's he doing at the bedroom door? So we get this from Song of Solomon 5 too. The bride, Song of Solomon 5 too, the bride was asleep, but her heart was awake. The bridegroom knocks at the door. He has to get permission into the Tamian chamber. She doesn't give him permission. I'm tired. I just got into bed. I'm half asleep. I'm barefoot. I don't want to get up. And so he leaves. He doesn't barge in. He leaves because he was not invited in. And so what we have here now are, you know, we can call them shadow people. We can call them hat men. We can call them demons. We can call them whatever we want. But what we actually have here are anti-bridegrooms. We have false bridegrooms coming through the door. They came through your door and now they're at the, at the bedroom door. They're hovering at that bedroom door. These bridegrooms uh, from the spirit realm, they are posing as the real bridegroom. They are seeking entrance into the Tamian chamber, which is why so many people who have sleep paralysis report that once these things come into the room, there's something erotic in nature. There's something sexual. There's rapes going on. There's something, there's very often a sexual component to this. And this vampire lore, you know, that once you invite a vampire in, you know, he, there's no way to break that contract. The only way you get out of a vampire covenant is if the ownership of the home changes place. Um, if, 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 if you no longer own that home, then he has to regain by getting permission or invitation from the new owner. That's the, the fictional vampire code of ethics. Well, it's, it's really the same thing as what's going on here is if we have invited wittingly or unwittingly through our sin or through ancestral, um, 
you know, praying over bloodlines, what if we have ancestors in secret societies or, or whatnot, or if during your sleep paralysis episodes, you're being dragged into the astral realm and you're making covenants with these things and you're waking up and you're having no memory of them, uh, you are in a marriage covenant with these things now. The only way to break that covenant is for the ownership of the home to change hands. Now, this is where it gets really interesting. And this is where I think the, the church is missing the deeper analogy of praying to receive Jesus into your heart. In Revelation 3.20, when he says, behold, I stand at the door and knock, he's the bridegroom wanting entrance into that Tamian chamber. He's not going to come into that chamber unless the door is opened up and he's welcomed inside. This is the spirit realm code of ethics. If you're from the spirit realm, you can't get into this area without permission. And so when we invite Jesus into our heart, all the things that we think happen are happening. He comes into our heart and we're, you know, we start a sanctification process. We become one with him. The old man dies that we're now living to the new man and, uh, and all of this, but what's happening on a deeper level is he's canceling all of the prior betrothal contracts because what breaks a marriage contract is death. When one of the spouses dies, you're free to remarry. So what happens is when we pray and we receive Jesus into our heart, we are now the temples of the Holy Spirit. So when we invite Jesus into our heart, he's crossing a threshold. He's setting up his home there. We're dying to the old man, which means when we die, the the ownership of the home, which is our heart, has changed possession. Now we have a doorkeeper. So when these things come back to trick us into entrance again, now we have a bridegroom at the door who opens the door and says, what do you want? Because I've entered into a blood covenant with this with this bride. I've spilled my own blood and put it on the lintels of this doorpost. I've sworn a covenant with her that I am not going to let anything harm her. Get out of here. And those contracts have been broken because we're now living as a new man and we have a new owner of the home. This is all tied in together. Song of Solomon 5.2, Revelation 3.20 the sleep paralysis experience, what these things are, what they're posing as, what they're trying to accomplish. It is a, they are trying to get us to enter into a false betrothal covenant to give our hearts and our souls to a bridegroom other than the real bridegroom, which is why so many of them in the astral realm pose as Jesus so that everybody thinks, oh, it is the bridegroom, but it, it is not. So um, I know I didn't get to the blood and salt. I didn't get to the salt covenant yet, but I thought I'd come up for air and see if you guys wanted to say something before I went there. No, I love that. And I love the ties. I love how you tie that in and, and you, you see it because I think what our culture is right now is, is, you know, and as we see it keep going down the, the terrible rabbit hole, it's a, it's a bastardization of, of everything that is scriptural. It takes it and takes it, you know, like you said, it flips it on its head and you can see that throughout, you know, the, 
you just you see that throughout everything. You can't watch the news and not see that. You can't. I mean, and, and it just if you're someone who really is affected by those things, you need to be even deeper in the word because it just will sit on you. It's that oppression that you talk about. It's those things that if you let that. Oh, man, I tell you, it just it's heavy. And yeah. and that's where we have to look and, and find hope in, in the Bible and scripture and, and in fellowship with, you know, fellow Christians and, and help each other through these kind of events, things like this that we're talking about. I mean, there's a, there's all different types of struggles that people have, but when you're having a physical experience with something that's supernatural, that's truly terrifying. Cause you know, somebody breaks into my house and they're, flesh and blood. Well, you know what? I can deal with that. Let's, I'll take that head on. What do you do for something supernatural? You can't pick up a gun and shoot supernatural. It doesn't work. You know, you have to You call the ghostbusters. You call the ghostbusters. (laughs) Yeah. With their sage. Well, I don't know. I think you're, you're kind of one of the ghostbusters now you'd have to get one of those. I think that could be your Halloween costume next year. Oh man. Oh man. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody told Tom the other day, Tom Dunn, my partner in crime. They're like, yeah, through the black. You guys are like uh, heavy metal. Focus on the family. <laughs> <laughs> I like, wonder I'll take if, that. If James like that. Dobson. How do you feel about that? Yeah, yeah. right. What do you think, JD? <laughs> so, um, so I'm. I know I'm going to be tipping over some sacred cows here for a few people, and I'm sorry, but uh, this is why the hyper grace doctrine is so devastating. When you put it into the framework of this betrothal covenant language that we're using now if if what we're what we're literally doing when we invite jesus into our heart what we're literally doing is saying i'm married to a wife beater i'm in a domestic violence situation here this this guy i married is evil and and hates me and he wants me dead and it's a domestic violence situation jesus I want you to come into my heart. I want you to be my new husband. And he says, well, legally, I can't marry you because your spouse is still alive. So I'm going to have to kill you. <laughs> You're going to have to die to self. That'll get you out of that marriage contract. So, okay, let's do it. I'm going to sign up for that. And so in, in this case, we die to the old man. We're baptized as, as a metaphor of that. We're going into the grave. We're coming up. We enter into a new betrothal agreement with Jesus Christ. You are now my bridegroom. I'm faithful to you. And and this is going to be a monogamous relationship. This concept that I can sin, repent, rinse, repeat, sin, repent, rinse, repeat. (laughs) Oh, forgive me. Oh, forgive me. Oh, forgive me. Oh, forgive me. What you're basically doing there is saying to Jesus, I'm in a domestic violence situation. I am with a bridegroom who wants to kill me. Will you please be my bridegroom? Will you protect me? But I want to stay married to the guy that's beating me too. Is that okay? No, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. You cannot invite Jesus into your heart. You cannot expect Jesus to cover the lentils of the doorposts of your heart with his own shed blood and move into your home and then say, you get the guest bedroom because the husband that I'm already married to that you are going to boot out, I actually want to stay married to him too. 
but you can live in here with the guest bedroom and when things get too rough, you can run in here and rescue me from him. It doesn't work. That's not, that's not the way the metaphor goes on any level. So this is where we get into massive levels of theological ignorance. This is where we get into the divine ignorance of human, the, the human ignorance of divine things. It's this idea that we can have a bodyguard to protect us from the, the abusive spouse. That's not what salvation is. Hey, will you be my bodyguard to protect me from my abusive spouse that I refuse to divorce? That's not the way it works. Yeah. No, that makes that makes an absolute ton of sense. I, I just, I, I think that that's just an important point to make, though, when you talk about that, is that, you know, when you are dealing with sin, when you're dealing with things in your life, that you have to let that go to truly, to truly, allow yourself to to accept God to accept and I I'm just as guilty if not way more guilty than a lot of other people throughout most of my life um and and I've we've talked about this a lot recently is that I've only gotten the conviction that I have right now in the past 6 months maybe maybe a year not not quite a year probably 6 months where I've been more on fire than I've ever been and it you start feeling that and that starts letting go of some of those, some of those things from the past, some of those old, maybe bad habits or bad things that, you know, from the past. And it just, it feels amazing. I mean, really it does when you can truly feel God is, is in you. And I think that that's such an important thing to, that you have to cut the old to take on the new. I think that's so important to, to yeah. think about from that perspective. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, to shift gears, because I know you wanted me to talk about the salt covenant, and this is really fascinating. For anyone who's interested, there's a tiny little book that you can probably read in one sitting uh, called The Salt Covenant. Uh, clever, right? But it's uh, written by uh, Henry Clay Trumbull. It was written in the late 1800s. He was a spiritual man. He was, I think he was a pastor, but he, he was not writing the book to make any sort of spiritual connections. He was simply, he wrote a, a trilogy of books, the, the Blood Covenant, the Salt Covenant, and the Threshold Covenant. And what he was just doing was historically documenting these cultural traditions because they were starting to pass out of human practice. And he wanted to just leave a record for future generations that these things once happened. And so they're really helpful books. But the Salt Covenant, it's a very short book and it's super fascinating. So. Back in the day, these salt covenants were, again, they were as binding as a blood covenant. In fact, they were a stand-in for the blood covenant. They were synonymous with the blood covenant because the same way blood is necessary for us to be alive, you know, if you drained all the blood out of us, we wouldn't last long. Same thing with salt. Salt is a, a integral component to human existence and to our body and the way it functions. And, and so... Uh, the salt covenant is somewhat synonymous with the blood covenant in that sense that it it stands for life. It's a metaphor for life. And so these salt covenants were just as binding as the blood covenant. When you were in a salt covenant with someone, it was absolutely unbreakable. And if you broke a salt covenant, 
you were shamed, you were shunned by your family, you might have even been put to death by your family because of the shame you brought upon your whole na the name of your whole family. Uh, there were people that would commit suicide if they broke a salt covenant because there's no way that they could ever be accepted in that town or get a job or anything at, at that point. It was a huge deal. You just you didn't break your word when you made a salt covenant. And uh, because we don't typically want to sit down with a teaspoon of salt and digest a teaspoon of salt because it would be gross, they, there's a carrier. So it's the bread. And so the, there's salt in bread. So when you break bread with another person, you're imbibing in this salt covenant. And so if you now delve into the scriptures, uh, let, let me just tell you something. If you fully understand a threshold covenant and a bread covenant, a bread and salt covenant, once you fully do the history on that and what that meant and everything that it entailed, and then you reread the Bible, every passage that talks about a doorpost or a gate or a threshold or a temple altar or breaking of bread, it, you'll think, how am I even reading the same book? It brings so much light to what is really being explained. So anyway, and I, and I am going to get to the Last Supper, but <laughs> these bread and salt covenants, um, it, it was the breaking of bread. And this is why in scripture it says, don't have fellowship with an unbeliever. Don't eat a meal with them. Don't break bread with them. So it's not like, Hey man, you better not not better go to better not go to Mr. Steak with your non-Christian coworker, right? What it's saying there is when you break bread with someone, again, human ignorance of divine things, you might not care that it, it's a covenant. You might not remember, you might not you might not think it's important. You might say well, that's not what it means to me. You can brush it off all you want, but because we're dealing with an extremely legalistic demon world that hates our guts, they are still aware of the fact that when you break bread and you imbibe an assault covenant with a non-believer, you've just covenanted with them. And this is why when Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door and knock, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door and lets me in, what does he do, what does he do when he comes in? Eats. He's, he's partaking in a bread covenant with us. So Again, the betrothal language is there. I'm covenanting with you. I'm breaking bread with you, which means I will never leave you or forsake you. You know, when he told the disciples, I will never leave you or forsake you. He backed that up with a bread covenant. He broke bread with them during that last supper. So, you know, a lot of people like to be way over here arguing about whether or not that was communion or was it Passover and was it the day of Passover? Was it the day before Passover? And, you know, all, all this stuff, the importance of that passage is he dipped that bread in, in the cup, in the sauce and passed it. All 12 of his disciples took that bread from him. He was covenanting with all of them. Look, I'm going to leave you. I am going to depart and I'm going to be gone for a lot longer than you think I'm going to be gone. As the years pass, you're going to start to question whether or not I really was who I said I was. Where is he? I thought he was going to come back. 
Now I'm old. Now my hair is gray. I'm almost dead. Jesus never came back. He broke his promise. He broke that bread to assure them, I am going to prepare a place for you. And I am coming back to take you to be with me where I am. And he sealed it with an absolute unbreakable salt covenant so that they knew he is going to come back. So when he dipped the bread in the dish, and you got to think in terms of this is probably unleavened bread. This isn't a big, huge, fluffy roll, you know, with butter all over it. This is a pretty flat, tasteless piece of unleavened bread. We don't know what he dipped that bread in, but in the research that I've done, it is probable or it's likely or it's possible that this was a Roman condiment. It was a fish sauce. And the, the sauce, kind of like what we do at Olive Garden where we dip our bread in the olive oil, it was a kind of like uh, an oil concoction that you dip the bread in because the fish, fish is salty. And so it would add salt and it would add flavor to this otherwise somewhat untasty bread. So what, when he dipped that bread in the dish, what he was doing was salting it so that it became a salt covenant. Everyone who took that bread with Jesus, which was all 12 of them, they were saying, we're entering into this covenant also. We also will never leave you or forsake you. And if you read Fox Books, Book of the Martyrs, you see that 11 of them, you know, well, John, they tried to martyr him several times, but they all kept their salt covenant with Jesus. They all died for him. They all were martyred for him. They even unto death, they did not break that salt covenant. And John, they tried to get him a few times um, and he survived them. Um, that's in Fox Book of the Martyrs, Martyrs. But Judas broke the salt covenant. He said, I will never leave you or forsake you. And then he gets up from the very table where he makes this covenant and he goes and sells Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. He broke his salt covenant. This is where we get the phrase, a man's not worth his salt. It means he's, he's a liar. He's untrustworthy. He's, he's a promise breaker. And so the cool little thing is in the Da Vinci painting, the famous Last Supper painting that we've all seen a million times, Judas is the guy holding the bag of silver, right? Obviously, this probably isn't happening in real life. It's just the artist's depiction. So you can differentiate from the painting. That one's Judas. So Judas is holding the, the money bag with the 30 pieces of silver. But if you look closely, there is a jar of salt by his forearm and it's tipped over and there's salt spilled on the table. So again, human ignorance of divine things. We don't know this. And even if the average Christian looked at that painting and noticed it like, oh, look, he tipped over the, who would know what that meant? It's fallen out of our, it's fallen out of our knowledge. But these salt covenants, these blood covenants, these betrothal covenants, these threshold covenants, they're still legitimate. They're, they still stand. And this gets into what we were talking about at the conference about the hearthstone and how that has changed through, through the ages. So I'll, I'll get into that a little bit. But again, I, I want to come up for air in case you guys want to interject. I 
that part I just <laughs> I absolutely love the I love that um, depiction. But I think we talk about that a lot is is looking at this stuff through we always say our new lens or that 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 uh, divine world council lens when you look at it through the eyes of the writers of the time when you see the cultural differences when you see the the um the aspects of everyday life that everybody would have known about back then and now you know it because our culture have changed so much because through sin and 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 entropy all the way down through that we have degraded so far that we have lost so much of those spiritual connections and, and um, the the biblical view that we used to have that you know we don't see you know the average Christian and that's that's the that's the average Christian uh, you know still does not understand that still doesn't see that and and I would have told you before <laughs> before going to that conference I wouldn't have seen it either so <laughs> well, I, I don't know if this originated with Michael Lake, but the first time I heard it was from Michael Lake, and I love it. He said that we're never going to understand what's really going on in the scriptures if we don't understand the culture, the context, the language, the history, and the geography. And all that made sense to me. And and But one of them was like, geography, like who cares? But there's, it, it's so true. Like we miss so much. And I mean, even like the the famous, and I know a lot of people already know this, but it's just a good example. When Jesus is having that whole discussion with Peter, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? They're in front of Pan's Grotto. They're in front of the very like gateway to hell, you know, Pan's Grotto there. They're at the base of Mount Hermon. They walk, they climb Mount Hermon and the whole transfiguration is on Hermon where the, these watchers came down. So geography, I mean, it just, and there's so many other cool things like that. And I won't sidetrack myself, even though I'd love to go on about that because the geography, there's so much to know, but um, back to this threshold and the hearthstone. So this is playing in again to the human ignorance of divine things. If we don't understand the significance that the spiritual realm puts on our front door <laughs> and our hearthstone, we are going to be vulnerable to attack. And I, I will unpack that now. So Trumbull talks about this in his book, The Threshold Covenant. In antiquity, way back before urbanization, where we were an agrarian society and everyone's whole world was just their little plot of land. So there was no grocery store, there was no church, there was no temple, there was no hospital. Everything, you know, you hunted your own food, you planted your own garden, you cooked your own food. And the the patriarch of the family, whether it was the grandfather or the father or the husband, the patriarch of the home was the house priest. And the home was considered the temple, the threshold of the home was the altar. And the fire was put at the, not the threshold, it wasn't right there on the door. The hearthstone and the uh, threshold were originally separated by some space, but the hearthstone was the original 
altar of the home and it was the original threshold before people started building homes and, and things like that. So the hearthstone where the fire was, was the altar. And it was where the libations and the sacrifices were made to the household deity, whether that be God Almighty or something pagan. That was also where the covenants were made with the family and with, with the guests. That's where the hospitality rituals were done. That's where the blood covenants were done. The threshold covenants were done. It was synonymous with the hearthstone. What is so interesting to me is as we civilize, as we travel through time and we get you know more and more civilized, and as this knowledge passes further and further out of our common understanding, Another interesting thing happens. The hearthstone gets further and further away from the outside of the home. So now the altar is inside the home. So when you call upon the, the deity of your home, you no longer have even that space between the hearthstone and the door to kind of change your mind and say, whoa, 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 I don't want you in my house. You know, now that the actual rituals and ceremonies are, are moving deeper and deeper into the home, these deities have made their way into the home. They've been given their invitation that they need. So we have the hearthstone, which is originally outside. Then as people go from living in caves to living in, in tents and whatnot, now we have a doorway. And so now the doorway becomes synonymous with the altar. And, and this is still in like Jewish traditions, like, I don't know if you've ever been uh, celebrated Passover with like an actual Jewish family, but they will, the, the patriarch of the family in the dining room or wherever they're having that meal, they will get up from the table and they will stand in the doorway, like between the kitchen and the dining room, they will stand on a threshold and read the Passover passages. They, they know, they know. So the hearthstone moves to the doorway. So now the front door becomes the altar. And this is, you know, where Passover comes into play, where they put the blood on the door. Now it's the door. But then as we become more civilized and we are, our knowledge of these spiritual things fall, fall more out of knowledge, this threshold is getting moved deeper and deeper into the home. So at, at one point now, the fire is no longer outside. It's in a fireplace in the kitchen. And the fireplaces of old were massive. They were like stables. Like you could walk into them and you'd walk into it and there'd be pots hanging and things like that. And so now the kitchen becomes the, the gathering place. It's still the altar. It's still the family altar. But now it's in the kitchen. And this is the gathering place for fellowship, for meals, for warmth, for family devotions, for sacrifices. This is now in the kitchen. Then we have the birth of the potbelly stove. And this gets moved. This moves the fireplace now out into more of like a dining room area. So the cooking is going on in, in the kitchen. But now you're gathering around the family altar for warmth basically for warmth now you're gathered there because that's where everyone's you know staying warm as 
we get into the centuries now where we've got radiators and forced heat and things like that. Now the fireplace gets moved deeper into the home and you don't really need it for cooking or warmth anymore. So now it's pretty much just the gathering place for fellowship. So, you know, back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, you'd gather with your family around the fireplace and, you know, you'd play games and you'd have family time, you know, you'd have your, your Friday night game night and all that. And what's very interesting to me, and I don't think it's by accident, I think it's part of the skotas, it's part of this darkness, it's part of the human ignorance of divine things. We no longer know or care that the hearthstone is an altar where we invite, we give invitation to deities to enter our home. Where's the fireplace now? If you even have one in your home anymore at all. A lot of times it's in a basement. It's a gas fireplace. You, you flick a switch. And what does it become? It has become the mount for the plasma television. The fireplace is where you hang mm. your plasma. That's where it's at. For it our, is our new deity. <laughs> it's our new it's deity. And you bet your life you are inviting things into your home with the crap we're watching on those things, right? So it's still a place of gathering. It's still where all the family gathers. But now it's binging Netflix for hours and hours. That, whether you know it or not, whether you know it and don't give a rip about it, the fact of the matter is that hearthstone is your family altar. So dads, husbands, ponder this. Bring it before the Lord. And, and if the Holy Spirit tells you, oh, she's full of baloney, don't worry about it. It's just like, you know, we don't do that anymore. Then you're free to go. But I'm just telling you, <laughs> up until the mid-1800s, that thing was an altar. And now I got shadow people standing at my bedroom door. Is this a coincidence? Is this a coincidence? I think not. Uh, that's just. Whew. I'll tell you what. It's, when you talk about it, there is so much to unpack there. Um, and it, and it's so much more. And I think at some point in the future, we're going to have to, we're going to have to delve in a little deeper. And I do love the ge the geography stuff like you're talking about too. I think listening to, um, we were at the same conference with Derek Gilbert and the, the Valley of the shadow of death uh, that just, that just rocked my world too. And, um, he came on and he came on and talked to us, um, about that uh, about two weeks before the conference he he okay. talked to us about that and my gosh i mean so we had heard it we'd heard it once before but i still got chills the second time and also uh i don't remember the guy's name that we interviewed but he's talking about the mountain that abraham walked up to sacrifice his son it was called different but it was the same oh Doug hilltop Van yeah same hilltop where christ was crucified mm-hmm that's which is pretty wild as Doug Van Dorn. We talked to um, last week. We talked to Doug Van Dorn. I know. I'll tell you what, the days are just kind of just flying together. But but Vicky, would you like to tell everybody where they can find your stuff, your books? Um, I know you have some stuff with Through the Black on YouTube and things uh, and you can plug uh, Tom Dunn. You can you can plug uh, Colleen, whatever you want to go ahead. 
you got awesome. the floor. Thank you. Okay, deep breath here, guys. <laughs> so if you're interested in the content of what we talked about tonight, they only come out at night. Exposing the dark weapon of sleep paralysis is available exclusively on lamarzuli.net. It is not on Amazon. It's nowhere else. So go to lamarzuli.net. Uh, if you're interested in my other books, you can go to vickyjoyanderson.com. I'm Vicky Joy Author on Instagram. Uh, I'm pretty sure I've been shadow banned on TikTok, so I don't know if you'll find me on there. <laughs> I'm down to like two hits. Um, but Through the Black 2 on YouTube, if you, if you uh, do a search in YouTube, a lot of people have trouble finding it. If you do a search on YouTube for Through the Black, like Through the Black Tom Dunn or something like that, you'll eventually find it. Through the Black, we are on six nights a week at 11 p.m. Eastern because we're night owls and gluttons for punishment. Um, I'm on Monday through Wednesday. Tom and I are on Monday through Wednesday, and then Colleen and Pastor Sean do uh, Thursday and Saturday. And then Friday, Tom and Kenny C and I do Audiotopsy, where we do presuppositional analysis on song lyrics. And so that's kind of a fun thing. So oh, what am I forgetting? Colleen James, if you go on to Amazon, Amazon.com, The Lie Effect by Colleen James and Nancy Bowser. That's Colleen's book. Oh, and Real Dark News. Uh, if you go on to realdarknews.com, it is the news website that is kind of in conjunction with Through the Black. And um, I'm a writer on that um, that platform as well. Uh, you are busy. You might want to try Rumble. Get rid of that YouTube. <laughs> we we try, So we got booted off of YouTube. We had about 17,000 viewers. We got booted off. We went to Rumble, and we could not get an audience. We couldn't. You'll, I mean, you'll we, have to we, do them both, I'd say, to, to get think, them to swap over. I think we are still on Rumble, but we get really low numbers over there. Well, I'll go check you out on Rumble. Okay. All right. <laughs> well, thanks again, Vicky, for stopping by. We really appreciate it. Um, this has been like, I, you know, it's, I've heard this and, and tonight, I like this tonight because I've heard a lot of the, the other material and things that you've brought. And I know a lot of people really just want to, they want to hear the, the scary parts. They want to hear that because everybody's so intrigued by terror and I, not me personally, but so many people are intrigued by terror and, I just really like and I really appreciate that you dug into so many other things and, and went down so many other avenues tonight. I think that was awesome. And I, we, we all, we really appreciate it. And um, I hope to talk to you again soon. Absolutely. Thanks guys so much for having me on and say hi to Justin for me. And um, just, yeah, thanks again. I had a great time. Thank you so much. We thank you for listening to the Dig Bible Podcast. Questions, comments, or future episode ideas, we'd love to hear from you at thedig423 at gmail.com. If you enjoy our content, don't forget to share, subscribe, and check out our Facebook group at the Dig Podcast. Remember, you can't lean on a shovel and pray for a hole. you got to dig.